Join with me once, uh, once more this morning to the book of Lamentations, chapter 5. We're finishing our series through this uh, book this morning. And we'll be looking particularly at, at verses 10 through the end, 10 through 22. But I'm going to read this whole uh, poem, this whole prayer of the people of God, again, beginning with verse 1. So here... God's holy, infallible word, Lamentations 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father, our mothers like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravish the women in Zion, the virgins in the city of Judah, Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill, and youths stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate. Young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl in it. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. Well, again, we've come to the end of Lamentations, this remarkable and unique book, singularly uh, difficult uh, in its sustained lament over the destruction of Jerusalem and all the, the horror that, that was part of that and the sin that brought it about. Now, we as Americans, we expect our, our books and our movies to have happy endings, uh, to have resolution, to have, have some significant closure. Uh, that doesn't reflect everyday life, but it's almost universally what we experience, what we expect in books and movies and stories, a a happily ever after of sorts. Uh, I I have quoted before from Carl Truman, who's a a British uh, pastor, theologian, and uh, he he has observed this. He's, He's written about this observation, not being from the United States. He says, boy, do Americans like happy endings. He says, I remember my jaw hitting the floor some years ago when I watched a Disney version of Notre Dame de Paris where the hunchback doesn't die but lives happily ever after. And maybe some of you didn't know that that's uh, Disney's version is not at all how the story ends, how it goes. He goes on to say at least he didn't have corrective surgery and and become Brad Pitt. But but he says the point of the story of Quasimodo is that the guy with the hump dies at the end and it's all terribly sad. My wife is meant to cry. I'm meant to feel angry at the raw deal that Quasimodo has been dealt in the poker game of life. And to take that away is to change the storyline beyond recognition. And and he goes on to give this 
uh, parallel. He says, I mean, imagine King Kong, where the monkey sees the error of his ways, climbs down from the Empire State Building, and follows the seven spiritual laws on how to become a better you by not kidnapping blonde actresses, and goes on to win Dancing with the Stars. He says, let's, let's face it, the story would lose something. Well, Lamentations does not give us our, our expected happy ending. Uh, again, in a real way, chapter 3, as we've talked about, does, it is the pinnacle of the book. It, it does give the conclusion of Lamentations. There are a few wonderful glimpses of hope and faith uh, there that we've dwelled on. But in terms of the story, in terms of the circumstances of, of the suffering of this city, uh, there, there's really no resolution and happy ending. Uh, there's no reading, you know, and the Babylonians were defeated and then they ran away and everything was restored to normal and music and dancing began again. And there are no final um, poems of, of warm and glowing faith, not even a final verse in the book that, that we might, you know, put on a warm greeting card. Uh, there, there, of course, is much of all of that in the Bible, but Lamentations stays in the time of grief. It, it doesn't skip past it. it. It forces us to enter into it and to, to deal honestly in the real world, and it leaves uh, the rest of the story, if you will, to uh, the rest of the Bible. And in doing that, again, the book meets us where we are, right, as people whose hurts and griefs and sufferings often have very lasting impact on us, often have lasting presence with us, uh, even through a lifetime. And, and the book is a great blessing to us in that, in the way that God identifies with our griefs. Uh, I've cited a book that's been very helpful to me in studying this book of Lamentations uh, by C.J. Williams. It's, again, it's called Lamentations, A Guide to Grieving with Faith. And again, I'll commend it to you and, and just note that I'm going to draw from that significantly it's, it's some of its concluding thoughts uh, today on this final poem. Uh, the subtitle of it is itself instructive, A Guide to Grieving with Faith. Um, as a book without the, the happy ending that we expect, Lamentations is in that, uh, A Guide to Grieving with Faith. It, it doesn't end with happiness per se, but it does end with real and firm hope and trust, and worship, and, and even from a distance uh, with a pa- the, the path to ultimate and lasting joy and peace uh, in view. So let's take up this book one final time and, and see its parting lessons for us on grieving with faith, grieving toward ultimate and, and certain hope uh, in the God of all hope. So this morning, four, four lessons through this grieving people. Again, four lessons. Number one on your outline as you'll see, there is grieving with faith. Uh, look, look again at the first six verses or so, beginning with verse 10, uh, and, the, and the next five verses or so. All these sad descriptions here of the way that things um, are now in Jerusalem. Uh, Christopher Wright summarizes this as it's, it's public shame mixed with physical agony. Uh, more of what we've read in this book. Uh, and you can read into these descriptions about the women and the children, the men of the city. You can read into them their opposite and, and see what, what used to be, what they're longing for. Verse 21 says they're longing for those days of old. Um, reading those opposites in. The, the women were safe. The leaders were leading and were honored. 
Um, there, there was the joy of music and dance was, was common and, and constant even. Um, these realities, this, this grieving over these things being up, turned upside down in this last chapter again, uh, are brought to the Lord, for example, in verse 20. When you think about verse 20 for a moment, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so long? How should we understand a prayer like that to God here, even at the end of the book? Why? Is there bitterness towards God left over here? Uh, is, is there some blame pointed at God? I don't think that's how we should read these prayers for, for several reasons. For one, verse 16 in this prayer uh, expresses full confession of sin. Woe to us, for we have sinned. All of these laments lead up to that clear confession of sin. There's, there's worship of God here as well that we'll get to uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but these are also frequent prayers in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Why? How long, Lord? Why are you doing this, my God? How long will you allow this? These are questions about difficult things, but I, I, I think we ought to recognize they're questions asked in faith. Uh, these are questions only asked by believers as, as they bring these things to the Lord. They're questions asked in the context of a covenant relationship with a God who, who is faithful to his promises, who is all-knowing and all-wise. They're, they're like the questions of a child to, to a parent. How long do I have to stay in my room? Or, or why, do we, why do we have to do such and such? Right? And the child, depending on their age, may not fully be able to understand the answers to those questions. But the questions ask in the context of a relationship with the parents. Knowing that the parent has the answers and, and has some purpose and some plan. Uh, again, David cries out with these questions in the Psalms. Why? How long? They're, they're, they're asked in confidence that God, in his infinite goodness and wisdom, has answers to questions like that, even if he's not revealed or revealing those uh, at this time. And God gives us here lamentations in the Psalms, example, uh, permission, we might say, even instruction uh, to bring our trials and our griefs to him, even with, with such strong questions. And, and even more powerfully than the, these examples in the Psalms or in lamentations, uh, we're given the example of Jesus. Uh, and the question, I, I, I brought it up um, last week as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, is there some sinful bitterness or, or uh, blame in, in Jesus there towards the Father? No, Jesus took up that question um, in, in faith. Uh, and he took up that question under the, under the damning wrath of God in your place. So that even though you suffer and I suffer and we experience the, the chastening of God in this life, you will only ever ask those questions uh, secure in God's love. Uh, not, as Jesus asked it, experiencing uh, God's judgment for sin. At our, our men's study a week ago, our Saturday morning men's study a week ago Saturday, we, we talked for a little while about the word faith. Just the, the word, very familiar an important word, uh, faith. And, and one, of, one of the guys uh, mentioned he doesn't even like to use that word. He'd, he'd rather use other synonyms. Uh, just because the word faith in our broader culture has become so nebulous and, and so watered down. 
Uh, we hear all the time about people of faith or faith communities, by which it's meant, you know, people out there who, who believe something, right? Uh, it, it means almost nothing. Um, uh, faith often means uh, nothing more than just sort of a, sort of a positive feeling that things are going to turn out okay, right? Uh, Christian, you can grieve as those who have what, what real, true, biblical faith is, uh, which is an absolute trust in the object of your faith, uh, in your good and, and faithful God. Uh, so the Lamentations has shown us grieving with faith. Secondly, grieving and repentance. Again, all the descriptions of, of verses 10 through 16, all these things that have been turned upside down lead up to uh, the end of verse 16, I think, which is, woe to us, for we have sinned. And here's the, the clearest most unqualified confession uh, in the book by the people who had been so faithless, so stubborn towards God, so profane towards his law and his, his grace for so many years uh, of, of their sin. Um, we've, we've talked throughout the study of this book about the fact that our circumstances are not the same as those in Jerusalem suffering this way, particularly in that much of our suffering is not a, a direct result of our sin, as if there's a one-to-one, you know, we did this, and so God brought this into our lives. That's not how God uh, relates to us. We certainly can suffer consequences of bad decisions, uh, sort of natural consequences. But we've also noted that no suffering is unrelated, generally, to the effects of sin in a fallen world. And, and so all trials are, biblically, an occasion to examine yourself to, to be called away from pride or self-sufficiency or any sin to, to holiness, to greater faith and love. And so the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of, as Paul puts it, putting off and putting on. And so I, I briefly want you to see two aspects of repentance, even a life of repentance, that Lamentations points us to here. Uh, the first is, and you see letter A on your outline there, your responsibility. Uh, your responsibility to turn. Um, implied, I think, in this confession of verse 16, woe to us for we have sinned, is that there ought to be a, a turning back to God. We've done this. We, we ought to turn back to you, Lord. Uh, and that word uh, is actually used in verse 21. Uh, the word for turning, or, or that, that's the basic idea of repentance in, in the Bible. In verse 21, restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored, is literally uh, turn, that we may be turned, or that we may repent. Um, it, it was even clearer uh, back in, in chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, verse 40, where the people said, let us examine and probe our ways and let us turn, or let us return to the Lord. And, and there, they weren't yet doing it. They weren't yet speaking to the Lord. They were sort of making a plan to repent. But that's the basic idea. I have on, on the back of your bulletins there, because it was the best space for it, uh, question or answer 87 from the Shorter Catechism, uh, which is a great summary of uh, what repentance is. If you look at that for a second. A look at the second half of that statement, that summary of what repentance is. A significant part of repentance is a sinner, it says, when, with grief and hatred of his sin, turning from it, right? And in endeavoring after new obedience, it says. 
Now, again, in, in Lamentations, we've read about the, the fault of the priests and the other leaders in Jerusalem. We've read about the fault of, of previous generations. But all of that fades now. And here, the people look at themselves. No, no excuses. We have sinned. They've come to the proper response to God. Which essentially, in, in light of the holiness and mercies of God, how ought I to live? How ought I to think and to love? Uh, and, and to turn. But, but there's another significant ap- aspect of repentance that's evident, especially here in this, in this chapter. Looking at letter B on your outline, that's God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace. We, we hopefully understand well as, as a Reformed church celebrating the biblical doctrines of grace, your salvation, your, uh, the forgiveness of your sins, um, your adoption as a child of God, these things are an act of God's free grace alone. All right, it's, it's God's free gift to you. Uh, you've contributed nothing towards earning the forgiveness of your sins. It's, it's purchased for you by the merits of Jesus' life and death. It's, it's a one-time act of faith. But until glory, we still struggle with sin. Uh, we're, we're, living out of, uh, we're living out a life of repentance that's a constant struggle. And so uh, the question is, whose responsibility is that, that ongoing process? Who does that? How is that accomplished? Well, again, as in, in point letter A, we, we have responsibility for it, uh, for sure. That explains the, the calls to repentance in the Bible and the commands to obedience. But at the same time, a, a sinner cannot become holy, cannot grow in faith or hope and love on his own or on her own, in her own strength. And so that's reflected clearly in the, in the prayer of verse 21. Look at verse 21 again, where it says, Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Again, it's literally the word turn or, or repent. Turn us to you, Lord, so that we may be returned. Or cause us to repent so that we may repent. Lord, you must act on us. You must draw us. You must work in our hearts. It's also reflected in, you look in the back of your bulletin again, the the shorter catechism summary of what repentance is. We already read the part that made it clear that we have a responsibility uh, to to turn. But look how the answer answer begins, rather. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's first a saving grace. And so our our sufferings, our griefs, especially as they're opportunities for us to self-reflect and and to repent, they bring together God's sovereign grace and our need for it, uh, together with our responsibility uh, to live in it, to live it out. It's it's something of a paradox, maybe, but it's not a contradiction. You're you're called to work together with, with the grace of God in you that is making you more like Jesus. Listen to a couple other verses that that state this. Um, the two sides to this. Leviticus 20, verses 7 to 8. Uh, listen how it begins and ends. God says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I the Lord am the Lord who makes you holy. You might want to say, well, which is it? <laughs> Philippians chapter 2 is a great example as well, where, where God through Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because... It is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, we might want to say, well, which is it, God? But it's both. We, we can work out our salvation because God is at work 
in us uh, by his grace. So your griefs as well give you an opportunity both to work out your salvation more fully, to endeavor to new obedience, as the Catechism says, and to more fully rest in and ask for the grace of God uh, at the same time. So uh, grief and repentance. Thirdly, uh, on your outline, we find the saints here grieving and yet worshiping. Grieving yet worshiping. So reading through this final prayer, of, of the people of God here and, and further lament and the horror of what they're experiencing and suffering, uh, verse 19 suddenly hits you as incongruous, as, as out of place. We're reading about the, the suffering of, of women and men and the music is gone and foxes are just wandering around a desolate city. And then verse 19, you, O Lord, rule forever. Now, where did this come from? I want to suggest a couple of things. I think it comes first from the fact that as, as the people in this book are moving more from, from complaint and intense focus on their own suffering, as they're moving from that increasingly to seeing their own guilt before God, verse 16, and looking to him for grace and restoration, verse 21, as they're remembering his faithfulness and his compassion, particularly in, in chapter 3, um, and the, the powerful glimpses of that there, as they're doing that, their eyes are coming off of themselves. Right? And they're compelled to worship, not to deny or downplay their ongoing grief. If their eyes are coming off of themselves. They're looking to God. And that's, that's part of the nature of worship and the benefit of worship for you, for us, especially as we grieve or struggle or hurt. Worship takes our eyes off of ourselves. It, it reorients us to the joy and the satisfaction that we have in him alone. So I think that's one thing that explains this, this sudden outburst of praise here in verse 19. Uh, a second, uh, we might glean from comparing this to Psalm 102. Uh, Psalm 102 is also a lament, a very deep lament uh, for much of the psalm. And then it also very suddenly... Uh, explodes in praise to God um, in verse 12 of Psalm 102. And it's, it's basically the same statement uh, as here uh, in Lamentations 5.19. Uh, Psalm 102, But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. And one commentator actually calls it an obvious allusion here to Psalm 102. Uh, and if it is... Maybe we, can, we should pay attention to the, the rest of the statement there in Psalm 102, which goes like this. You will arise, you will arise, and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time can come. So this burst of worship in Psalm 22 comes from a confidence that, that God will be gracious in his perfect timing. And maybe we can assume the same confidence here, the same worship of God focused on his perfect timing and his perfect promises. This outburst of worship is, is of the unchanging and powerful and all-wise God who, despite the messes that we make and the messes we get into, uh, has made unchanging and powerful promises. This, this poem lays out the mess, and then it suddenly says, but you, Lord, rule forever. It's, it's your promises and your grace and your justice that have the final say. And that will break through in your perfect timing. 
And so in grief, we ought to worship the God of gracious and powerful promises uh, and take our eyes off of ourselves. Fourthly, on your outline, after reading, after reading verse 19 and, and also verse 21, maybe it seems we're ending on a high and hopeful and worshipful note in this, in this sad book. Then we read verse 22. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. The end. We probably wish that verse 21 or verse 19 was, was the end. And we could sort of inject into it you know, all, the, all the other hopes and joys and things that we know from the rest of the Bible. Is verse 22 throwing some doubt on the whole prayer? Is it, is it canceling the hope and worship that's just been expressed? Well, it, it is a difficult ending uh, to, to swallow, to deal with. But I, I think there are two angles, two lessons in this final verse uh, that we ought to see. So looking at letter A on your outline. I'm going to argue in, in letter B, in point B, that there is actually hope and assurance in this final verse here. But, but I think that part of what we see in the way that this book ends is that it simply doesn't allow us a happy, uplifting, resolved, rejoicing ending at this point. One commentator puts it this way. This is the voice of those still enduring present suffering and, and seeing no end in sight yet. And the affirmation and prayer, the, the verse 19 and so on, comes from the center of a storm that is not yet abated. Uh, many of you would know we're going to study in our adult class, we've begun studying the 19th century uh, church history. In the 19th century, uh, Horatio Spafford lost all four of his daughters uh, in a shipwreck across in the Atlantic. He wasn't with them. Uh, they all died in that, in that tragedy. And, and then as he was immediately after crossing the Atlantic to go see his wife, who was rescued uh, from that shipwreck, uh, he wrote a poem that then became the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And praise God for, for real comfort based on real truth that, that Spafford knew for, for peace that passes understanding or peace like a river, as Horatio Spafford put it in his, his famous poem. Uh, but that is not always where we are. Right? That's not the sentiment of lamentations, largely. It's not the sentiment of the Psalms, often. At least in large part of them, uh, some of them. I, I've been at some funerals, one in particular in, in the last several years that stands out in my mind for a, uh, the sudden tragic death of, of a very young man, uh, where this is the hymn that was sung, It Is Well With My Soul. In that case, it was a version of it. We sang that line about 50 times. Um, and I couldn't help but think, maybe it's premature to sing such a thing. Not that the family had lost their faith in the Lord. They, they hadn't at all. Uh, and that was evident, but, but I know it was not well with their souls, uh, nor should it have been in, in every sense. And for weeks and months and years, it would not be perfectly fine in their souls, having lost their son, and their brother. And it was for exactly that sort of situation that God gives us words in his word to cry out, why? How long, Lord? 
And Lamentations expresses real and and true worship and hope and, and communion with God. And yet it powerfully reminds us in this last verse that the pain and struggle continued. It reminds us that it's It's not as simple in our human experience as just saying, great is your faithfulness. There, I feel better. Reminds us that for many of us today, lament is still needed. The the pain of loss or the grief of broken relationships or the guilt of sin or whatever is, is still biting. So praise God that here in this book, he identifies so graciously with those of us for whom it is not yet well in our souls. Again, chapter 3 pointed us particularly to the the suffering man there, the Christ figure who enters into our sufferings and suffers in our place uh, and gives it meaning and healing ultimately. A second lesson, the final verse, uh, looking at letter B in your outline. This verse gives assurance uh, in a theological impossibility, I want to suggest. Verse 22 again says, Unless you have utterly rejected us, and are exceedingly angry with us. I think this verse simply states what is unthinkable and impossible for God. To bring to mind what must be true of God, despite the circumstances. It expresses assurance of God in in a sort of backwards way by expressing the unthinkably absurd for a compassionate God whose mercies never cease, whose faithfulness prevails unfailingly. That's the God of Lamentations. Again, particularly in chapter 3. Could God really reject this this heartfelt confession from his people? Could he turn away his own children? It's the question, could God turn his back on himself and his own covenant promises? These these suggestions are, are blasphemous in a sense. And I think that's the very point of the verse, is to point out the absurdity, the impossibility of that being the conclusion. Imagine your child, say, growing, you know, growing into young adulthood or something, is making bad mistakes, becoming distant from you, straining your relationship. And after a long time, as you've been pleading with him and praying for him and praying for repentance and restoration, he comes back and, and he gives full and unqualified uh, repentance and asks for your forgiveness and he shows resolve to uh, live differently, to love you and honor you. And he asks for your forgiveness uh, with the qualification, uh, unless, mom and dad, you hate my guts and you just never want to see me again. That would be, could be stated in a manipulative way, but assuming it's not, that it's unthinkable for loving and and godly parents. And the mention of the thought immediately brings to mind your family relationship and your love and, and the absurdity that that would be the way forward. And how much more so with God and his covenant love and promises that verse 22 could ever be possible. There are many reasons why nothing can separate you from the love of God, Uh, not even your own sin. Uh, God's promise, his own character, the fact that it doesn't depend on you. Uh, God's God's plan in Christ to glorify himself and, and save you. But the main reason rooted that's the root of all of those, why the suggestion of verse 22 is absurd for you and me, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
If, if you are in Christ, if your faith is in him, your salvation was not made possible by his death and resurrection. Uh, it was purchased on that day. It was accomplished. It was sealed forever. God foresaw all of your sin and your apathy and your selfishness and your slowness to repent and your taking for granted his, his blessings. And he counted all of it against Jesus because of his has said for you, his steadfast love. And so we can say the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you again uh, for your word uh, through Jeremiah and this, this book of lament. We thank you for the ways, the many ways in your word, and especially in the person of the Lord Jesus, that you identify with us in our suffering and our grief and our uh, crying out with, with difficult questions about things that we, we can't understand, uh, but crying out with trust in you. I pray that you would uh, help us uh, today and in uh, reflecting on this book to learn, the, learn its lessons uh, of grieving, uh, grie- whether grieving our sin or grieving uh, just hard circumstances that you'd al- you've allowed in our lives. And I pray that that would point us to Christ and would point us to worship you uh, and to trust you more. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.